informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Dr. Erwin Redliner, co-founder of the Children's Health Fund and author of The Future of Us, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. Dr. Erwin Redliner is co-founder with singer-songwriter Paul Simon of the Children's Health Fund, a national network of more than 50 mobile and fixed-site pediatric clinics providing more than 250,000 health care encounters each year in 25 of the nation's most medically underserved urban and rural communities. His new book is both a memoir and a call to action for all Americans, private citizens, business and government to invest in our country's children. Dr. Redliner is a professor of health policy and management at Columbia's Mailman School of Public Health and directs the university's National Center for Disaster Preparedness. He's featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and on TED Talk. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Dr. Erwin Redliner. Great to be here. Thank you. Great to, the Future of Us. That's the title of the book. So my first question is, uh, why did you choose this title? Well, one of the things that's uh, been very apparent to me over decades now of practicing uh, pediatrics with children who are extremely poor or extremely uh, disconnected from uh, mainstream society and have a great deal of difficulty finding a, a route to success and a, or a pathway that leads them from early childhood to a successful, productive life as an adult. And um, I, I think this is obviously, these are things that, uh, and I describe in my book several uh, children who I met over the years who actually were facing all kinds of adversities with very little chance of overcoming them and fulfill their, their own dreams and aspirations. And I am concerned about them, and I'm concerned about the impact of uh, failing to provide kids like this with pathways to success as it affects all of us uh, collectively in our society. And I, I think the, the duality of concern, the concern for the individual children and the concern for the impact of uh, children being unsuccessful for reasons that might be preventable on our future is what drove me to that particular title, which, by the way, I had a fight with the publishers about. <laughs> um, which is usually the case, as I understand it. You know, it's an odd thing. You know, you write a book and you have a certain point in mind, and then, but the publishers and the author have to kind of, uh, you know, get into this uh, discussion about what is the right title. And, uh, but I, having had uh, other publishing uh, experiences with, uh, with um, books, I, I really wanted to make sure that the point of what I was trying to say was clear in the title. So it's kind of like father knows best. They somehow do know yeah, what's best yeah, in terms yeah, of exactly, which, how you're going to exactly. sell your, yeah, because you have to yeah, sell the book, yeah. right? Um, yeah. Oh, you know, before we talk about maybe what we can do or how we can overcome, sure. obviously, a lot of these problems, talk about the, because I found in the book the examples that were really, uh, really poignant, I guess, of all these kids that you've met and the ones that you talk about who have so much potential, and yet you know, even when you are, when you first see them, and they talk about what they do and what they want to be when they grow up, you realize they're never going to be able to accomplish that, at least not in terms of the context right now of what we're not yeah. doing for them. Sure. You know, and to me, the first uh, story I tell in the book, and it was on purpose, was this uh, uh, situation with a child. I saw a 10-year-old kid named uh, William who 
very, very poor. He had no family uh, that uh, that he could go to, and he was actually living in a foster facility and had been in multiple foster facilities, even even by age ten. And um, I saw him in one of the examining rooms in one of our uh, mobile pediatric clinics. And my usual, you know, uh, question, first question to kind of break the ice with children, um, especially kids who are shy and, and uh, uh, have difficulty expressing themselves, but the, the proverbial, what do you want to be when you grow up? And uh, that usually opens up some conversation, which I really actually enjoy with uh, children that I'm seeing. But William said he wanted to be a paleontologist, and I said, I was pretty taken aback, and I said, what's a paleontologist? He said, somebody who looks for dinosaur bones and so on. And I said, uh, <clears throat> that's right, how do you know about this? And he literally pulled out of his pocket a yellowed uh, article torn out of a New York Times from a year before about a famous paleontologist who works out west in the, uh, in the U.S., and he kept this in his pocket as kind of a, a reminder, as a lifeline, as a guidepost uh, that would remind him that there's something out there for him. But what struck me was the conditions under which I saw him was a very poor child in a foster setting uh, who had been only irregularly going to school. And I knew that the chances of this child becoming a paleontologist were almost nil. And, uh, and then the capper on this, Catherine, was like, Maybe 25 years later, I was speaking with a friend of mine um, who runs a big organization in Washington, um, and I was telling Billy about my book and this kid that I was writing about, and he's looking at me, and I said, well, what's up? And he said, uh, you know, uh, my own 10-year-old child wants to be a paleontologist, and my wife and I got him every book available for his age on dinosaurs. We've taken him to all the museums in the region, and last month we uh, called... Uh, we called a paleontologist out west, a very famous one, and he invited us to come out, and we brought Nathan, our son, uh, with us, and he spent the day with this famous paleontologist. And the contrast between William and Nathan was just overwhelming to me. And uh, that's really what was the genesis of wanting to write about children who have dreams, but very little chance of those dreams becoming uh, uh, successful roadmaps because they were facing too many adversities. So what can we do? I'm thinking about those two, Those are great examples, and they are really 180s from each other. Is there, and, and that's one, you know, what can we do maybe as a society, as individuals, as professionals to change that for someone like William? Um, and do you, this was, you said, 25 years ago. Uh, I assume you haven't followed, you don't know where he is or yeah. what happened. Um I'm well, most that. of the kids I yep. talk about, or at least a good number of the kids that I talk about in the book, I have been able to follow in one way or the other, but he was in the New York City foster system, William, and I was really, I tried, but I, I just couldn't keep track of him. There were all sorts of privacy issues, even for me as his physician, but I, I couldn't uh, I couldn't get through the bureaucracy. But, um, you know, the chance of him having become a paleontologist are very, very slim, but and that's, I guess, pretty obvious. But... And, uh, you know, I think the issue of what we can do about it is, is the question. There was recently um, actually some reporting in the New York Times about uh, the, uh, what happens to, uh, to society if we don't take care of children who live in poverty. And uh, it ends up being extremely costly. Uh, not to invest in children has an enormous impact on 
uh, let's say, federal expenditures and a large portion of the gross domestic product, but especially the, the, uh, the annual federal budget goes to remediation for those problems associated with poverty that we didn't fix. So poor education, children ending up in the criminal justice system, and so on, cost a lot of money. So something on the order of uh, slightly over $1 trillion a year has to be spent by us uh, to fix the problems that should never have occurred in the first place if we'd invested early on to deal with poverty and the consequences of poverty. So there are two things, really, I think that uh, people should be aware of. First of all, um, we want to make sure that our elected representatives at all levels of government, and particularly the federal government, uh, are aware of this information I'm just telling you, and that they vote accordingly. Uh, we don't want to saddle the next generation and the generation after that with the cost of dealing with um, unrepaired poverty-related problems. And the investment now is absolutely critical. So we want to make sure that when we're voting and when we're supporting candidates and when we're analyzing candidates running for public office, especially at the highest levels, that we ask them, uh, we uh, as voters want you to be attentive to the absolute necessity for investing in the elimination of poverty. That is one thing. The second thing is on a local level, there's a lot that can be done in terms of making sure that our school systems are responding to children in poverty, that our social service networks are in place and intact, and that particularly parents feel empowered to be advocates and spokespersons for their own children. And, uh, you know, I've often been struck by the difference between Republicans and Democrats, and uh, neither one of them is entirely right, I must say, when it comes to this, because Democrats are sort of really into investing in programs, and that's fine, and Republicans are into empowering parents and, and underscoring the role of parents. And I think they're both right, and we, both, we have to be doing both of those things simultaneously. I mean, and the, the, a good example of our way I express that is to say that, um, you know, governments cannot raise children. That is the responsibility of parents. Uh, on the other hand, parents, especially poor parents, can't build schools. And we have so many of our schools that are falling apart that are terrible learning environments that we need this partnership between parents becoming good parents and remaining good parents and government fulfilling its responsibility uh, to provide the infrastructure to make sure schools are, are safe and appropriate and make sure there's health care access for all children. Do you have examples, can you give us examples of maybe the best and the worst of what we're doing here in the United States, some of the best schools, some of the good examples that we can look up to, and then some of the ones that are the worst ones that, that we need to it's critical that we change. Sure, yeah. You know, so the schools, unfortunately, all over the country, in both rural areas and in urban areas, where the physical plant of the school is a disaster. You know, there's leaky pipes, leaky roofs, uh, uh, heating and, uh, and air conditioning uh, not functioning properly, uh, overcrowded classrooms, uh, schools that are not providing enough actual basic school supplies so that they're depending on teachers from their own pocket uh, paying for the very basic tools that children need in their school systems, no less not having computers and up-to-date systems that uh, kids really need to have in the 21st century. And we're dealing with, for example, we're working with uh, three uh, very poor performing schools here in New York City uh, where, let's say, uh, 5% to 10% only of third graders are reading at third grade level. 
I mean, it's just a disaster. On the other hand, there are many examples of schools that have invested in making sure that the building and the infrastructure is of high quality, number one, and uh, number two, that, that they've invested enough so that teachers, even in very poor environments, are dealing with small classrooms, plenty of facilities, and all the tools they need, and they're also engaging parents. Um, and I think this is uh, in almost any community, except for the most extreme uh, poverty communities are the most extreme uh, high high income communities that uh, that many of the communities that fall in the vast middle here have examples of both uh, high performing and uh, very poor performing schools so there are lots of examples across the country like this and I think uh, so the thing that I think parents I, I want to just reemphasize the role of parents not only with their own children but working in the parent teacher type associations and other things that uh, give parents a voice in how the schools are being run. And I think that's really important, that people should get involved in their communities and especially around the programs and services for children. Same goes for health care, by the way, because uh, there's a lot of children, uh, even if they're on Medicaid, which is the government uh, health program for poor children, uh, may not, they may have insurance, but they don't have access to actual health care providers, doctors and nurses and so on. So there's a lot of work to be done locally, and I think involvement of people uh, is absolutely critical here. Well, what do you say? I mean, I know parents today that most parents are a majority of parents, let's say middle class parents, both parents are working. And, uh, you know, as a social worker, I know many of them will say, well, I, I don't have time to get involved. I don't have to, I don't, I'm, you know, I'm, I can barely just get by going to my job, taking my kids to the things they need to go to, but I can't join a parent teachers association, much less get involved in any kind of politics. How do you make them see how important it is it's just in, in relation to what you just said? What, how, how do you change their attitudes? What do you do? Well, first of all, it's absolutely legitimate that there are many families where, where uh, both parents are, uh, if, there's both, if there's two parents and both parents are working hard in single-parent families, even more stress than many times uh, single parents are working multiple jobs just to uh, make sure that they can take care of their basic needs. Um, and the question there is, uh, well, what should be done about that? And there's a couple of things. First of all, on a larger scale, there are many, many uh, states and cities that are thinking hard about uh, having preschool available for all children. And, uh, for example, in New York City, one of the things that uh, Bill de Blasio, the current mayor, uh, promised when he was first elected, that there would be preschool available uh, for every four-year-old. This is pre-kindergarten. And that's really great, and that, that helps uh, children get exposed to some of the things that they need when they're young. And now there's more talk about expanding Head Start, but also expanding pre-pre-K, that is for three-year-olds, universal access. Uh, in some countries, um, daycare is universal and free, like in France, and I think that's, that's another solution that probably should be talked about. But in any case, um, when... Uh, and, and actually the only formal, it, until they're actually in school, the only formal access to a system or a point of care might be the pediatrician. The pediatricians or the family doctors will be seeing children from birth and seeing parents as well. And the message needs to be uh, repeated in those settings uh, when you're giving the uh, immunizations, when you're talking about uh, health needs of, and development of, of children. It's a really good opportunity to let parents know things like, you know, the more words a child hears uh, in the very early years, uh, 
the better. Just keep talking and reading. Whenever you are with your kids, make sure that they are. You're just talking to them constantly, not baby talk, just talking actual words. It turns out that people from Af- children from affluent families hear about 30 million words by the time that they're uh, going to school, uh, compared to 3 million words may be heard by a child who's living in poverty. So there's a lot of education that can be done, and I think we need to be really, really sympathetic uh, for families that are struggling economically, uh, and that's why we have to make sure that there are programs in the communities available to help families uh, like that uh, make sure that the kids are getting what they need. But somebody is watching, you know, when parents are working, there's somebody watching those children, whether it's in a daycare program or it's, it's a grandma or whoever it is. Those folks also ought to be informed about the value of uh, communication with children, what is positive play all about, and all of those, and all of those uh, ways of uh, introducing communication, interaction, and all of that, which is extremely important for uh, child development. Yeah, it's interesting you should say that. I live in a neighborhood here in, in New York City in, in lower Manhattan, and I see a lot of children at activities or on the street with their, quote, and I'm saying nannies, they're called nannies. I'm not sure they really are nannies who are on yeah. their cell phones most of the time. Uh, yeah. And I, I'm always wondering what the parents would think if they actually could see what these nannies are doing with their kids, but certainly not talking to them and and not, you know, what did you say, the difference between kids who are middle class, upper middle class families, 30 million words as words, opposed to three words million words. Yeah. yeah. Uh, these kids maybe just have the three million words, but um, aren't, yeah. isn't, uh, aren't we going in the opposite direction with this administration? We're taking away health care for these the, the disadvantaged children. We're not providing what we need to do, as you've been describing it in school systems. Yeah. Are we going, I mean, in the opposite direction, or, or what is happening? Well, this is a very strange time politically uh, now that you're bringing it up, and I, I think there's a lot of concern. I mean, it seems that our entire attention politically is now on scandals and horrible uh, breakdown of communications among uh, elected officials. And, uh, I mean, I'm happy to get into more, more detail about uh, the, the current administration, but I think the point is, and I think there's another point to be made here, is that the poverty level for children has ranged between, at the very lowest, 10 and 11 percent or so, and up to 21 percent. And that, is, that range has been in existence for as long as I've been in the business, which is since about 1970. And that's through Democratic and Republican administrations, Democratic and Republican Senates and Houses of Representatives and so on. I just The only point I would make here is that even with the most friendly uh, pol- political leaders in place, We've never eliminated childhood poverty. We've never made sure that every single child is getting access to health care and that every single school in America is a functioning, high-quality school. So I, I don't know what to say about this. It seems that America has an aversion to, lo- to investment and long-term planning. I, I just don't, you know, we're, we're getting better, I guess, at crisis response, but our, there's a fundamental uh, challenge that we have in, in not making the kind of investments that will make America truly strong and powerful in the years to come. And, you know, we're going to be facing some very, very tough global problems and competitors in China and Russia and India, uh, Japan, uh, maybe even uh, countries out of the Middle East and so on. But what we're dealing with is the potential 
uh, of draining the U.S. treasure by having to fix things that we should have uh, that we should have prevented in the first place, which is one of the more compelling reasons why we have to make sure that, that our investment priorities are appropriate. But right now, uh, it is not a happy time politically for children. It is maybe one of the most uh, uh, anti-child. Uh, administrations and, that I've seen in a very long time. Even things like what's happening in our environment and toxins and make sure the, our air and water and everything is, is uh, clean. We have an EPA administrator who basically doesn't believe in science. We, we are in not a good time right now uh, for kids, and that's really unfortunate. So what is your prediction? I, I, I mean, you are the expert. You've been in the business, as you say, since the 70s. Uh, let's say at the end of this administration and all of, I mean, the stuff that's happening that uh, is very negative. We don't put monies into schools. We don't put monies into the environment, all of that. Right. What do you think is going to happen? I mean, we that really does put us way too far behind. I mean, at, at some point is, that we can't yeah, you know, really get out of it. Right, a very good point that you're making because, uh, you know, there's a time sensitivity issue here. So, in other words, if we don't uh, inject these prevention programs, we don't have them available, and we're not focused on them for children, let's say, now who are zero to five years of age, uh, when they're 20, you you can't make that up. You can provide remediation and some improvement, but you can't go back in time. And for children missing those critical stages where it is important to have good schools, good daycare available, uh, proper information for parents to make sure that their children are, are ready for school and so on. Um, so there's a certain urgency here, um, and I think we can't fix really entirely in, or in any way, shape, or form the generation of uh, who are children uh, who have grew up in poverty are now in their 20s and 30s and so on. But we can fix it for the next generation. My, and my prediction is that uh, there's going to be a massive turnaround in America because of the depths to which this administration is taking us. It's, it's more or less a wake-up call. And I, I, I know this is also a cliche, but I really do think we're going to see some things happening uh, electorally in, in this year in November and in 2020. And I think people will, will be thinking about our responsibilities as a country uh, our need to invest in the future and so on. And I think, uh, you know, while I'm, you know, despairing about many of the things we're having now, and I'm heart, heartbroken about some of the children we, we are currently seeing, I, I think I remain optimistic because I think there's so much potential in children, and I think there's a lot of potential among Americans generally uh, to see what's happening and, and uh, try to reverse course. And I, I and I, part of it is driven by, uh, you know, understanding my own children and especially my seven grandchildren. They, they're inspiring. And I just uh, think about uh, what is available to my kids and driven by uh, an optimism that we'll all want for all children what uh, most of us have for our own children and grandchildren. And that's one of the drivers of this book uh, also. Um, and I, uh, hopefully people will, will get this message and we'll see a whole new world here in the next few years. Well, there's so much in your book. I mean, obviously, we're just covering on some of the uh, a few points, but um, and I do recommend that everybody go out and buy the book. But, you know, we have a few minutes left. So what about, tell us just in a few words, like what, how you got interested and, and what motivated you? What kind of a background that you came from that 
that sort of, that sort of propelled you into what you're doing now? Well, that's a very interesting question, and I think that's one of the reasons that this book is a combination of memoir and these stories about children and then the recommendations of what we all need to do, both government and individuals. Um, and, you know, my, my own personal story is a very complex one. I, you know, it was not an easy childhood particularly, but I had uh, two very loving and supportive parents who were both uh, activists in one way or the other. My mom was a teacher. And my dad was a psychologist and uh, worked in the VA systems, but very active in, you know, in politics and dealing with, you know, issues like the war in Vietnam and uh, civil rights movement and all that. And I grew up in a household that was very committed to uh, every person having, uh, you know, human rights and civil rights protected and nurtured and uh, and especially focused on uh, what children needed, and there was that was there was an infusion in that household that I grew up in that uh, my two brothers and I really uh, experienced, you know, in real time. And I think that was important, even though there was a fair amount of adversity and uh, challenges in the household. Those commitments to social justice and, and equality was something that uh, was part of our upbringing. But the other thing is, I had a lot of experiences myself personally, including visiting a reform school where there was a you know, children as young as six years of age incarcerated, actually, in a, in a prison environment. That really, really disturbed me. And, and uh, this is when I was, uh, you know, before I was 20. And uh, I, uh, I absorbed all that and uh, ended up really committing myself to a life of uh, helping, uh, helping kids succeed. But it was, it was also, I think, one of the things I wanted to do with the book was make it very readable and interesting. And I put a, a lot of things in there of... of these little sidetracks that uh, uh, consumed me for, for periods of time in terms of working on uh, disaster response and then uh, really realizing that children, for example, were, were extremely affected and most vulnerable in disaster situations, which is something that I'm working on even, even uh, today quite a bit. And, uh, you know, we've had uh, dinner with Fidel Castro. I've, you know, I was on the board of USA for Africa and worked the uh, famine relief there and uh, was at board meetings with uh, the likes of Michael Jackson and all that. And a lot of these, I put them in the book because they were, I never quite figured out how they got integrated into what was driving my career, but they were certainly entertaining and, uh, and interesting. But the whole uh, mosaic of my experiences uh, led me to a point where I've now had, uh, you know, 40 plus years of working uh, with children who are underserved and facing adversities, working with disasters and uh, and the response and recovery from them, and uh, all of these life experiences. I think this is a lesson for people in general. Almost any life experience that you have contributes to your worldview, to your philosophy for how you see things. And I think that's what I wanted to get into this book. Also, that all of this collectively ends up in the in a in the you know you you grow up and here you are and what. How did you get there? And that's what I wanted to have in the book, in addition to some pretty, I think, dramatic uh, and telling stories about the struggles of poor children. Yeah, and that's great because that's what makes the book so interesting because you, you, you sort of you get you get it all in there, but in a very engaging way that we can connect to because you make it very personal. Um, 
The Future of Us is the title of the book, What the Dreams of Children Mean for 21st Century America. And I've been talking to Dr. Erwin Redliner. We have 30 seconds left, doctor. So also give we can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores everywhere. But a website that we can go to to get more information about you and the book? Well, there's... I, I was as opposed to me. Let me say there's two websites that I refer people to. One is uh, is www.childrenshealthfund. No abbreviate, no uh, apostrophe. Just childrenshealthfund.org, uh, and the other is ncdp.columbia.edu. And uh, so those are my two hats. And I think the Children's Health Fund one in particular will tell people a lot about what we've been able to accomplish. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Great talking to you today. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you so yeah. much. Have a great Thank day. Thank you. You too. I'm Bye-bye. Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts, we'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is author and caregiver C.J. Golden. She's author of One Pedal at a Time, a novice caregiver, and her cyclist husband face their new normal with courage, tenacity, and abundant love. C.J. Golden shares her accessible and honest experience, a balanced mix of sober reflections and light moments that highlight a very real passage in the lives of of a husband and wife who love each other unequivocally. 
As caregiver, she holds nothing back because she wants others who are unexpectedly thrown into the role of caregiver to know they are not alone. She's anything but typical. Golden has successful careers as a speech and hearing therapist, group sales manager of an equity playhouse, professional actress on stage, screen, and TV in New York and L.A., and is a published author of poetry, short stories, essays, articles, and blogs. Welcome to the show, CJ. Nice to have you here. <laughs> Thank you. Boy, having heard all of that, I must be very old to have accomplished all that. Wow. <laughs> Not necessarily. You can get a lot in in a short period of time if you just That's if true. you just focus, which is yeah. Uh, read your book, uh, and I think it really Thank is you. a very it, yeah. It's a it is a really good book for for caregivers. It's honest, and I think that's what we need to hear. Sometimes in a lot of these books, self help books, in particular, there's the how tos, what you should do, and then when you don't do it, and you're actually placed in that position or find yourself in that position. You're overwhelmed with fear and guilt, and I'm not doing what I should be, and I should be feeling mm-hmm. a certain way. And I think you really touch on all of that in your experience. So let's start with Thank your you. experience, because in the beginning, uh, your husband was the caregiver for you, but things took a, a, a turn, and uh, everything changed. So well, what happened? that the case with life? It, it yes. takes a turn, and everything changed. Um, I've had several back surgeries. The last one um, created a problem with the nerve that goes down to my foot. I have what is now charmingly recalled, uh, called as a um, drop foot. Uh, I need to find a, a more exciting okay. um, medical term for that. That's not a good and name. Joe, <laughs> pardon? That's not a good name. <laughs> no, it drop. isn't. I mean, drop his foot is. I'll come up with something. Um, Joe took care of me. He... Um, he was my caregiver. He um, he helped me around the house. He helped me ease me through my pain. He brought me breakfast every morning. And then one morning he looked at me and said, this is the last breakfast in bed. Tomorrow morning you're getting up and going to the kitchen table. You'll figure it out. And he knew just when to push, how to push, how to support. He was wonderful. And I had looked at him one day and said, don't you ever get sick because I could never never be the caregiver to you that you are to me. But he chose to ignore that and um, was diagnosed with chronic lymphocytic leukemia, which was symptom-free until it started to, uh, to rear its ugly head. And we believe it is the cause of the many devastating strokes that he endured in the year of 2016. I became his caregiver. It was my turn to to figure it out. And you know, you do it on the fly. You learn as you go. You listen to folks. You grab those things that seem to work for you and say thank you, but don't do the other things that aren't going to work for you. And all through this, all through this horrific year of almost losing him, because I'm a writer, I blogged. I blogged my feelings, my thoughts, my learnings, and I wrote emails to family and friends to keep them informed of what was going on. They were raw, they were honest, the emotion was there, and many had said, you know, you can help me. You could be a help, turn this into a book. Yeah, CJ, I, I want to go back a little bit. Book in me, but I did. Well, you did. I, I just want to go back to actually um, how this 
all came about because some sure. people are more prepared to be caregivers, caregivers, depending on the nature of the illness and, and how, you know, what, but in your case, and I, you know, I want to mention your husband was diagnosed just, he, there, as you say, there were no symptoms. So it was kind of a total surprise because it was just a routine checkup he had. And then they discovered something there in the blood work that wasn't quite right. So it's a total shock, I would imagine. I mean, that, that it was nothing that you were prepared, neither you or he, neither you or he were prepared for. No, not at all. Um, but I will tell you that when the CLL was diagnosed, we truly didn't, um, we kind of put it on the back burner because it seems to be, while it is a cancer, it, it, it's not uncommon in adults. It often requires no treatment. Uh, and, and so we chose the, um, well, I chose the Pollyanna um, <laughs> route for this. And it, it, we knew it was there, but and, until, until it created the strokes, of course, we, at that point it was, okay, this is real. This is honest. This is happening. This isn't good. Yeah. Now we have to deal with it. And created strokes in a man who, it's obviously in the title of the book, um, your husband was a, you know, an athlete, more than just an athlete, but here's a man who crossed the country, who rode his bicycle across the country, I think twice um, in middle age. So not expected. I think some people, and I just want, I mean, as a, and I am a social worker, I think some people are not necessarily, let's say they aren't athletes, they're used to maybe sitting around, not necessarily Uh being very active, makes it sometimes a little bit easier to adjust to these kinds of situations, but you were kind of, he was kind of obviously the total opposite. Um, Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah, he, um, and, and that's why we named the book One Petal at a Time, because that's how he crossed the country. Joe. How do you do this? How did you get to a thousand miles of inhospitable Texas? And he would say, one pedal at a time. And this is, this is what we had to adopt as our mantra. Um, seeing him and, and comparing, comparing the cyclist in him, watching him ride into his last big ride, uh, started in San Diego and ended in St. Augustine, Florida. And I watched him ride his bicycle into St. Augustine, and it was remarkable. And just a year later, just a year later, I would watch him being pushed in his wheelchair to our kitchen table. Can you describe um, those feelings? Just tell us, what was the feeling? I mean, this the man you married that you've been with for 25 years is in a wheelchair, and the man you married was somebody who was bicycling across the country, um, you know, just it's a year or two earlier. Hell. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's, to say upsetting <laughs> would be an understatement. Um, devastating emotionally. And yet, and yet, by the time he was back home and willing, being wheeled in his wheelchair, um, he was alive and he was home. And so I gleaned the positive aspects from that and held on to every small step that he made forward. 
So what were some of the mm-hmm. obstacles? First of all, when he wound up in the hospital, what you had to deal with as a caregiver. And then secondly, when he actually came home and you as a couple and as individuals, what you had to deal with. Yeah, You have to navigate the hospital system, that, and that's not an easy thing to do. No, it isn't. But I, 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 I saw immediately that I had to. I had to learn what was going on. I was not going to be Joe's wife and caregiver and be unknowledgeable. I was not going to make the whole medical system into some magical um, Harry Potter-esque kind of world that I totally could not understand. I was going to find, and I did, the nurses, the medical staff to whom I could turn, who would be patient with me, who would teach me what was happening. Certainly, I didn't get my medical degree. I fell a little bit short, but nothing was going on with Joe. No procedures were being done that I wasn't privy to understanding and agreeing to. Uh, when they came to me and said he needed a brain biopsy, <laughs> which Joe didn't know he had, he read about it in the book and said, wow, wasn't that dangerous? <laughs> and I said, well, yeah. Um, that didn't happen without my reaching out to every contact I had. Every contact I had gave me advice and help. They understood my need Nobody thought of me, well, they didn't tell me that they thought of me as a nuisance, but one of the chapters in the book is Hospital 101. You need to learn. You need to learn on the fly. You need to know what the heck is going on. And then I took that information, and when I knew that Joe was going to be coming home, they wanted him to go to a step-down facility. I was determined he should be home. Um, I learned. I learned how to how to do the feeding tube. I learned how to change and clean the Foley catheter. Um, well, while you were doing all to, that, and you were doing, and you say in the book, uh, you know, five tips to help make the transition from the hospital to to your home. Did you ever feel like, and you're talking about some really detailed kinds of, not nursing care exactly, but close to it. You know, um, did you ever feel like? Why me? Why am I doing this? How did this happen to me? Uh, no. I don't want to be doing this and, and feeling, no. yeah. I'm sorry for interrupting, but absolutely. I firmly believe that those of us who say, why me, need to turn that around into why not me. We are human. We are subject, all of us, to the same pains and misfortunes that exist in the world. Thankfully, my year of caregiving has now morphed into, well, we are a year and a half beyond that, and my caregiving duties are far less. But um, even with with my own surgeries, I, I could not allow myself to be mired in the why me. It was always the why not me. This happened Let's take it from here. Yeah, and it seems to me that you, because I think the why me is something that many people do go through, so I think it's, imp- mm-hmm. I, I'm glad to hear, uh, I wanted you, you know, obviously to, to talk about your experience, because I think you can turn 
all of this around in a sense. I mean, you talk about empowering yourself, empowering your husband, uh, getting closer to him. Um, there are a lot, and yeah, all this stuff comes happens to all of us. And I always say that most of the things that have happened to me, the what I initially think are the worst things come out of left field. You know, I'm sort of taking control of all kinds of things in my life, but then, whoa, the, the big yeah, thing is uh-huh. just about to happen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So it, it sort of, that comes, I think it comes across in your book. I mean, there's just a lot of pluses that come out of this too, in terms of your relationship, your closeness, um, a growth, both of you having evolved emotionally and I even say spiritually and and, and physically, both. Um, Very I think, much so. Yeah. And that is the um, now that I now that the book has been published and it's it's out in the world, and so too am I um, with kind folks like you who have me on your show and with speaking engagements. My first thought was, what can I teach other caregivers? They're all going through such difficult times and I realized what I cannot teach but share is my story Joe's story and that which came out of it which is a feeling of positive attitude a feeling of gratefulness Um, yes we are closer yes we laugh a heck of a lot um, at things that maybe other people might not laugh at you know if he comes up if he's having trouble coming up with a word and he makes a hand sign and the two of us just break into laughter. Um, This is what I hope to share with others now. Um, Been there, done that. We've gotten through the heaviest times of caregiving. Certainly I'm vigilant. Um, I don't know what's going to happen next, but nor do any of us know what's going to happen next. Um, But there can be, and there is good, that comes from, from this. And that's what I want to share with others. What about after the, and you call it, uh, I guess the term life redux, that life is different after healing. And uh, you, as a couple, you start over with a new normal. Mm-hmm. What about that little fear? I think that, that perhaps may or may not be there that something is going to go wrong or it could get worse instead of getting better. Um, do I have to always be vigilant? I think vigilant is a word. Let's talk about that because I think when one has to deal with illness or I'll talk about my own experiences, there is that kind of vigilance. Um, mm-hmm. There's not a carefreeness in terms of maybe one had before because <laughs> uh, you no, know what yeah, no. could happen. How do you deal with that? It's hard. You know, if he gets the hiccups, I think he's getting another stroke. Um, I've, I've, vigilance is still there. But it's not hysteria anymore. Well, not too much. <laughs> we were in, in Albany recently um, for women's basketball. He ended up in the hospital. It was most likely a stomach virus. Um, but, you know, I, 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 was, I was almost convinced that something major, something drastic was happening again. That's the vigilance taking over. I'm always watching. I don't know that I'll ever relax. I don't know that Joe will ever totally relax. He would profess that he's fine and calm, and then every once in a while he'll ask me a question. Um, Do you think I'll have a stroke again? So I know that's ruminating. That's rolling around in his mind. 
I, I think that we all deal with this. Once you've been hit hard, as Joe was hit, uh, the days of, oh, la-di-da, everything's wonderful, are done. You see that it, it can change. Those boulders appear on our paths without notice. And yes, vigilant, I am, I remain, I probably always will. Let's talk about the people, uh, friends, colleagues, those people who were helpful to you or may still be helpful, and those that you thought may be on your team when all of this happened, sort of bowed out or weren't there for you. Uh, how, who are they and how did you handle it? Um, some were friends, some were family members. At first, I harbored anger, resentment. Why doesn't she call? Why doesn't she answer, respond to emails? Why doesn't she appear to care? Um, Where is he when I thought I could count on him? And again, I had to let that anger go. Uh, There is a saying similar to when you harbor anger, it's like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't work in the scheme of things. I've come to recognize through reading, through life, through living, that everyone has their own angst. Everyone has their own stuff. Everyone is dealing with their own particular problems, and not everyone can step up to the plate the way we want them to. Yep. I think not you gave an example in the book of one of when we want them to. We are all, after all, only human, capable of doing and saying and being there for others only as much as we are capable. And I think that's a good point to make because I think the expectation is that everybody should or would be there for you, particularly people who you've been close to. But I think a point that's helpful that whether it's a family member or a good friend, sometimes doesn't step up to the plate because of they, they are so uncomfortable. They don't know mm-hmm. what to say. They feel they don't know how to say it when, yes. in fact, it doesn't matter what they say as long as it's supportive. But they themselves don't feel that. So they, they distance themselves um, yes. out of their own fears, not because they mm-hmm. don't feel for you or are empathetic to you. And I, I think that w- there were a couple examples in the book of that because I think that happens yes. a lot. Yeah. It, it um, does happen, and I read, you know, I, I'm on so many Facebook groups, caregiving groups, um, there to learn, there to participate, there to perhaps lend a hand and help, and what I see so often is, I'm alone in this, nobody helps me, or what do you, you know, she said something stupid to me. Well... I truly believe that the person who comes to me and says something that I think is stupid did not wake up that morning and say, oh, yeah, let's go say something stupid to CJ. Um, mm-mm, don't think so. Again, what folks say is the best they can say. And truly, only after you've been through um, uh, an emergency like this, when you've had such an adventure in your life, do you really understand what the best words are to put together to say? And even then, they are being heard by the listener. 
You know, I could say good morning to you, Catherine, and you could have had a really crummy day, and I could be saying good morning, and you could take it as, how does she mean that? I had a really crummy morning. You know, it's, it's not that that would be you, but, you know, it's all in the ears of the listener. Yeah, it's all in the context. I also would yeah. like to talk about, we have about few minutes left, like specifically okay. what people can do in those kinds of things. You know, a lot of people say, what can I do? What can they spend so much time asking you? And the person who is the caregiver is in a position, don't ask me, just maybe you could do something, you know, uh, if you're younger, take my kids to school or, or to lessons or to the doctors or be do very specific tasks are very helpful. Make food for us, do something like that. You know, um, those kinds of people it seems to me, usually know how to do it, and they do it well, and that's helpful. You don't have to always say something, just do something. Exactly. But you don't always know what to do. You, you can't always stand back and say, oh, look, she has little kids, let me help with that. Um, and sometimes, quite honestly, people did come to me and very sincerely and say, what can I do? Not, can I help you? I want to help, but what can I do? And then it's up to the caregiver to give honest answers. I didn't always. In the beginning, I said, oh, no, 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 I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. Until I learned that, well, what you can do is come sit with Joe for an hour while I go to a meeting. What you can do is contact a, a, a group of friends for me. I had to be honest. What you can do is not call every day but send me a text. The caregiver has to be honest in what she needs because if we're not honest in our needs, the recipient of, of, of that, the person who wants to help, won't know what to do. There, I think that's a very important point. And uh, people who are like yourself, very accomplished, uh, very sure of yourself in other areas or other arenas, don't want people to, I think, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but very often we feel, um, I don't want people feeling sorry for me or to see me as a victim so I can handle everything. Well, I can't handle everything and I have to be very specific about what I need. So that is a great point. Uh, we sort of have to end, right? We don't, sort of, we do have to end. Uh, so I want to make sure we can buy the book, Amazon.com, bookstores ever. Anywhere. Anywhere books are sold, one pedal at a time, a novice caregiver and her cyclist husband face their new normal with courage, tenacity, and abundant love. And folks can visit me at cjgolden, G-O-L-D-E-N.com. And from, from my home site, from my homepage at cjgolden.com, you'll find out more about all of my books. This book, um, you'll get links to Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn. Great, and see thanks. a picture. And see a picture. Together. That's great. <laughs> uh, thanks so much for being on the show today. Um, a really a, a really good book and, and one that caregivers and those who are being cared for both should read. Um, so good luck with the book, CJ. Thank you. Thank you, Catherine. This is, this is a pleasure. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. 
Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 